hit me. From Studio P, Sausalito, home of the hit, it's time for... Succotash. The number one comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast commentator, Mark Hershon. It is Mark Hershon, and I have Rick Overton. Well, not here live, but I have the entire interview I did with Rick Overton as featured in part in Succotash episode 6, so this would technically be episode 6.5. We will have episode 7, filled with a whole bunch of uh, new clips from new podcasts that we haven't uh, covered yet, and maybe a few old favorites too, but in the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy uh, my entire conversation with comedy legend, great, and friend, Rick Overton. Uh, Mark Hershon here with uh, my good friend Rick Overton. Hello, everybody. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's a pleasure, man. Uh, I'm glad you're able to uh, be part of the succotash, part of uh, the mix. You know, uh, don't let the killer, the crazy killer name throw you. Succotash is damn fine stuff. Yeah, it sure is. A lot of people have stayed alive on it. Would you prefer to be lima beans, peas, carrots, or corn? Um, I think lima beans. Sweet. At first, I had a huge aversion to them as a childhood. Came around. Good. Just how you make them. Isn't that kind of the same about everything? Yeah. Uh, well, there's certain things I don't care how you make them. <laughs> Still can't get me to wolf a snail down. I don't care how much garlic you dip it in. And uh, I, I, I might be able to get a cricket passed with a lot of chocolate around it. I've, I've swallowed enough bugs on the motorcycle. Uh, you're no stranger to the protein intake of uh, the true. road. That's true. <laughs> it's not not a great not a great diet. Yum! Festive colored monarch butterfly. <laughs> Tasty. No wonder it advertises. Um, some people will be unfamiliar with uh, with Rick Overton from your many different things you've done, and I don't know that we need to spend time chatting about them but what if i were to ask you about the uh maybe one or two things that you really uh when you look back on uh, your career to date you go man that i was really glad i was part of that well most everything i that's good i gotta say that i'm in the luckiest percentile of humankind anyone that gets to do what they want and then sometimes you get paid, you're on the lucky side of the coin. You're instantly on the other side. You're on the winning side of the coin, regardless of the parameter to which it's a, you're on the lucky side of a penny, nickel, dime, quarter, silver, dollar. Sure. Kugrin. You're, you're still on the lucky side of it. You're on heads. And uh, heads is where you do your version of life rather than the one you're told to do, and you realize later you you hate, but it's too late to start a new one, and now you're stuck doing the version you hate, and you shouldn't have listened to everybody who told you to do it. So, um, I'm, not to equate you with, with my experience, but I, I'm going to bet you really haven't had much of what would typically be called a midlife crisis. It's It's been a midlife crisis the entire time. <laughs> and at, at 56, I hope it's the middle of my life. Um, uh, but, but but in terms you know, of we, we got to ride motorcycles and you know chase women. That's all midlife crisis stuff. We just got to do it the whole time. That's right. So as opposed to the like you said, the the person who's sort of uh, you know sort of 
done what they're supposed to do, supposed in quotes. Yeah. Uh, uh, you've, you've followed, you've followed uh, kind of your own, your own lead as, as best you can in a, in a uh, career where you're, you're kind of beholden to people that are signing the paychecks, just like most other people. But you, you've had a sort of special existence, uh, probably thanks more to stand-up than, than a lot of other avenues. Yeah. I had a lucky existence thanks to stand-up. And um, it timed it right that someone suddenly started paying for the thing I'd be doing for free at the water cooler somewhere else. Yeah. And in the curve of our history, I just came into the door as they were beginning to build the big tent. And I go, what's that for? That's for a circus you'll belong to in a couple (laughs) of years. And I didn't know what it was. I was just uh, helping knock the stakes in, you know. So you guys started in 73? Uh, yeah. Actually in 71, if you can include the shtick I was doing in high school with my buddy Tom Pastor. Okay. <laughs> my, my dear buddy in Florida. Was that sketch? It was, uh, yeah, two-man pieces. Uh-huh. We did them in assemblies and stuff. We did a thing called, uh, there was a guy named uh, Neil Bush back in... Uh, New York who would do a helicopter traffic report and we did a spoof of him where the helicopter engine quits and uh, he's uh, giving up traffic report and he says uh, I'd avoid route 4 there's about to be an accident (laughs) (laughs) and you know we were very proud of that gag for back then and uh, then I uh, he went off into doing another line of work but he's done very well for himself in that line. And so I just saw him oh, a couple of months ago. Went down to visit. Him. Yeah, wow. we talk all the time on the uh, internets. And uh, my buddy Roger Sullivan. Now, uh, he's back in New Jersey. And he needs a heart transplant. And so we're all keeping our fingers crossed for him. Wow. That okay. he gets that because he's a good, good-hearted good man and ought to get a new one. So when you hit the first hit the professional stage, you were actually a, a two-man act with Roger. Yeah, I... Felt the confidence of a two-person force facing the strangers. That took a while to shake in 78. When And I remember after breaking up, I'd still have the reflex, do a joke, look left, no one's there, look ahead. <laughs> Train not to look left, don't look left, don't, he's not there. <laughs> Was that a difficult transition, going from uh, working as a duo? I mean, it sounds like you had it the high, probably... Uh... Was it like almost six years, seven years? Yeah, uh, seven years so of was... training, of having a partner, and relying on the rehearsing the bits, doing a little improv, but mostly do the bits. Now, were you uh, a like a kind of classic duo of one guy was the straight guy, one guy was the funny guy, or did you guys kind of no, swap those roles I was more the straight guy, but I did a lot of sound effects, and we had a little bit of the feeling of Edmonds and Curly. And, uh, okay. Remember them? Yeah, yeah. And uh, but we'd, we'd do all kinds. We did Star Wars sound effects, and we did, uh, you name it, if it was some sort of, Drug bits, we would have a little Cheech and Chong feel in there too, and a little Python feel. Okay. All our influences showed up very clearly in our stuff, but we had, we were starting to make our own flavor, but you know, it's just hard to split a paycheck when it's so little. Sure. And when it's for free, you stay artists. (laughs) 
And, oh, I love what you did, and I love what you did, because it's free. As soon as it's pay, it's like, oh, you know, that was my premise. Well, that was my punchline. <laughs> so what uh, what led to, what, was it the tr- having to split that paycheck that kind of split you guys apart, or was it kind of, hey, I can do this on my own, and I've got ideas that I want to do? You know, I look back on it, and I think it, and that and being a kid and just, you know, disagreements about direction, all that stuff. doesn't mean that Roger Sullivan isn't like a brilliant, funny mind. It just means, you know, we just sort of found a different, started, I started to find a different thing. And sure. He wanted it to stay just the way it was, and I think I was the one that wanted to break it further free, and he didn't, and so that was part of why, too. So, so let's talk a little bit about how your your act has evolved over the last forty years. Really, I mean, in <laughs> oh terms my god! Of, I mean, what did you? What, what, how would you classify your your up first starting out when you started working without Roger? Were you a monologist? Yeah, observation with weird cartoony twist guy. I had a bit where I'd say I lived in New York at the time, and there were. There was just beginning to be the cleanup after your dog law. Oh, yeah. And I say, well, I don't know why we can't have a little fun with it, turn it into a sport. I was never much of a golfer until I had a dog. <laughs> I think this one requires a nine iron. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you also did, when did the impressions start coming in? Was it right away? Yeah. Yeah, I was even doing them in the team a little bit, so oh, I just sort of branching that out a little more. And uh, I had a, a good Bruce Dern. Okay. But once I saw Jim Carrey's Bruce Dern, I just said, I walked up and shook his hand and said, I'm done with Dern. Wow. You okay. own him. Uh, I get it. I know when to walk away from an impression. You know, I got enough good ones. I don't need that one anymore. Now, were you ever it's in, yours. The, were you ever in the, the Jim Carrey position where somebody would come up to you and go, ah, you, you nailed that one. I can't. I can't follow. Well, Connery, I don't, I haven't seen, and I'll be honest, as soon as I see a Connery that's better than mine, I'll just go, okay, now you have Connery. Mm. I'm done. And I, because I've done that with several impressions. Uh, I thought I had Goldblum until I saw Elon Gold. I'm oh. done with Goldblum. I'm, I'm done doing certain things I know someone does better. I just want to have the one. I got Connery so far, and I'll be thrilled to see the guy that can blow my Connery off the map. I just haven't seen it yet. Now, you're, because of uh, the length of time you've been doing stand-up, I imagine your your Connery has sort of aged as as Connery himself has aged. Yes. <laughs> His voice has gone through several surgeries. And uh, he's not been in the scene very much lately, so I've got this kind of impression that everybody has to go, oh, wait a minute, is that Daniel Craig? Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I was just watching uh, The Man Who Would Be King last yeah. week. Peachy. I've gone blind, Peachy. <laughs> it's just uh, funny. Just I say, to... go over that bridge. We don't look back. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, you start out in, in New York working the, the nascent comedy club scene, I assume. Yeah. Catch a Rising Star, The Improv on 44th, The Comic Strip, The Comedy Cellar. A little bit of Dangerfields, uh, Alan Dick Steakhouse. And there's a few other little places, come and go kind of places, one night a week kind of places. Yeah. Lots of those. Yeah. The Jerry Stanley gigs back in Jersey. Mm. Did a lot of work with Gilbert on the road. Okay. And 
you know, the yuck yucks sure. and all that. And we just kill each other on the road, you know, especially if they put us in the same room because they're a real cheap club. Yeah. So it's me and Gil sleeping in the wow. same room on different beds, you know, like some... <laughs> yeah, it, like college dorm. College dorm, you know. <laughs> and I go, I'd say, you don't snore, I won't fart. <laughs> Got a deal, you know. Uh, so besides Gilbert <laughs> Gottfried, who else uh, Who else was around then doing those one-nighters? Mark Schiff, Glenn Hirsch, uh, Barry Diamond, uh, Ronnie Shakes. Elaine Boozler was already a little further ahead along with mm. Belzer and Andy and those guys. Yeah. You know, there was like, people say I'm in that generation. I'm kind of like saying I'm a baby boomer, which covers like a large area of breeding time for yes. when guys came back from World War II. <laughs> I'm on sort of the tail end of the baby boom, born in 54, as opposed to guys born in 46. Yeah. Now both your uh, before we sort of get out of, out of the New York era, both your both your folks were performers. Yeah, mom was a cordet, lollipop, Mr. Sandman. That uh, you know that show, uh, the wonderful Marvelettes, that new musical that's yeah. out. You know that's all based on the cordets. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, and uh, my dad was a jazz musician who helped uh, form bebop jazz. Wow. If you ever find the jazz loft. CD series online. Jazz Loft. Jazz Loft. That's my dad's loft. Okay. And all the cats are coming down there. I played Lionel Hampton's Vibes. Really? Yeah. He let me to ding da dung dong dong because I had the little multicolored <laughs> ones from yeah, Fisher yeah. Price and he goes, you ought to try one of these, you know? Mm -hmm. well, I was like, wow, that sounds a lot better than my little sh shitty little metal one, you know? Oh, <laughs> and uh, he taught at Juilliard. He arranged for Thelonious Monk. Really? Wow. Yeah, if you ever hear Monk at Town Hall, that's my dad. That's fantastic. Uh, so I was around a lot of comedians. Because they were opening or they yeah. just hung out in the scene? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and my dad played comedy records for me in the attic all the time. He played a lot of Jonathan Winters for me mm. and Newhart and Cosby and... Uh, Hit me to Lord Buckley. So that was really and Irwin Corey. Those were kind of your earliest influences then. Yeah. So what what tripped that switch uh, that said this is this is what I want to do? I mean, I think once you get a laugh in a classroom, and girls laugh, <laughs> and they won't stop looking at you the rest of the class, you kind of hooked after that, you know. <laughs> I, you just you start thinking to yourself, I have to reshape my whole life so that this defines it now, you know? <laughs> Once I got a couple of cute girls looking at me the whole time and kind of, you know, drawing little cute notes and sending them, you're funny with three E's, you know? Like, <laughs> okay, I get it. So what prompted the move from the East Coast to the West Coast? Chris Albrecht picked up a whole bunch of comedians. And he said, you got to come out there. It's just more work. And Chris had been a comic, right? He was a comic, along with Bob Zamuda, who now carries on the Andy legacy. That's right. As, um, uh, what's that character? He dresses up in the full makeup for uh, Tony Clifton. Tony Clifton, yeah. 
and does the whole thing uh, with the wig and the mustache and the sunglasses yeah. and the girls singing behind him and everything like that because that's kind of Andy-ish, right? Yeah. Uh, having another guy just continue doing it. Um, he, uh, he was in a team with Albrecht Zamuda. They worked at the Hippodrome. Then he was the manager at the Improv. And then he became an agent for ICM and just gill-netted a whole bunch of us and just dumped us on the West Coast deck there. Lots of comics came out for the boom. He started us, got us all started, kind of, you know. Oh, that's interesting. Got me into an HBO special, got me into... Uh, Gary Marshall gave me my first movie with Young Doctors in Love. Bud was giving us TV spots at Evening at the Improv. Because and, of Albrecht's muscle. Yeah, and I think we timed it nicely too to be who we were when we were who we were then. Mm. When it was like the RAF, they had more Spitfires than teenagers to stick in them, you know. Yeah. In the Battle of Britain, they were running out of pilots really quick, and they needed just just well, what's your name, Reg? Get in there, fly into the sky. <laughs> but my mom says I have to be home by three. <laughs> you will be. Get up there, hot in the sun. How did the uh, the shift from one coast to another, if it did, did it change your material? Did yeah, it... it did. I had a lot of make fun of L.A. stuff I couldn't do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> L.A. is laid back and everything. I thought it was laid back because of a couple of trips mm. I had there where it seemed laid back compared to because you don't walk. Right. It's like mess. It's like the joke I do to this day is, you know, I say, uh, you walk in New York, it, you could be anybody, power broker walking in New York, but if you're seen walking in L.A., it means something's gone horribly wrong with your career. <laughs> it means you failed. Where's your protective hermit crab shell like Angeline? She can't exist at Whole Foods for long, has to run back to the shell. Right, back to her pink Corvette. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I was... Uh, rewriting stuff and you get into other kinds of material you just joke about the region about people about travel then i was coming up with my train ride down south stuff and you know amtrak and the train slows down and the you know yeah. hillbillies want to come out and deal you when the train stops look at this one for they pick you out like lobsters in a tank you know <laughs> and uh, also i guess you started you know tailoring material for television because you're right there in the belly of the beast yeah I had to clean it up a bunch and tighten it down and but I didn't do so much of that. That's why I didn't really make it a lot on the late night shows. I made it on Bud's late night show because it was just me doing my thing. For the, they, they didn't hit you as hard on your set. Right. They let you do your set. But when you get to the big shows, they control your set. And when they do that, it's like I, I kind of I didn't know how to fit that all the time. I just do what I do, you know. And I probably could have done a lot better if I was able to play that more. But I wasn't able to adjust to their notes all the time. Yeah. I really find that I look back, I wonder what it would have been like if I did. But I wonder if I'd stayed in stand-up as long as I did. And then even longer, would I have, would I have bothered to go into acting at all? Because hmm. a lot of the guys, they never got back into acting again. They didn't, or they didn't get into acting because the living was there. And then, boom, that red gets pulled away and there's no second thing. Right. Nothing to fall back on. Right. Uh, so what moved you towards towards acting seeking acting you, you mentioned the young doctors in love but uh, i always liked it i liked it when i was in a team we were acting mm. and sketches is our quick moments of acting 
I always wanted to be in movies. I always had my hero was my other one of my big heroes was Peter Sellers. I wanted to do voices, characters, dialects, and I kind of do that. Sure. Don't always do it, but a lot of the times I get to have a voice that's not exactly mine. I don't. I'm not acting like a guy who's me. A lot of some comics they just play themselves right. in the movie, and it's easier to know who they are next. So the upside is you get to be interesting and different every time. The downside is no one knows who the hell you are half the time. Yeah. And, they, and you have to convince them that it was you in the part. Interesting. No, it wasn't. That wasn't you. I wouldn't lie about that. It's me. <laughs> Come on. That's right. What are you talking about? You think I don't know what parts I did? That's right. I think, I think you and I first met on the telephone when I interviewed you for... Uh, an article in Just for Laughs, old uh, comedy newspaper, yeah. uh, when Willow came out, because they did a piece both on you and on Kevin Pollack, because you were both playing the those brownies yes. in that movie. So I think that was probably the first time you and I actually spoke. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I said, no small parts, only small actors. <laughs> That's right. I remember the joke. That's right. Uh, but how did when that... When they told me I was going to be 12 inches, little did I realize. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Uh, how did how did that part come about? Was it just straight audition? Did, had somebody seen you? Well, I, I had already worked with Ron Howard in Gung Ho. Mm. That's right. The Michael Keaton fun movie that we went to Argentina and went to uh, Pittsburgh and shot for months and uh, had a great time doing it. And then he brought me in to be one of the brownies for Willow and uh, he, he said, do you have anyone to recommend? And I kind of helped get Kev into the movie there. That's right. That's right. And it's kind of funny that, I mean, both you guys, uh, strong, you have strong suits as, as impressionists. So it's just kind of funny that the two of you were, you know, doing, doing these characters together. He would kill me right before a take on purpose. <laughs> he'd wait for the camera to right be rolling and he'd lean in and go, because we're half naked. We're dressed like in these weird skin things that look like we're from, uh, you're sort of half uh, half Ewok. Well, yeah, and half 1981 haircut 100 video guys with those skins and the hair. Remember that? Yeah. Love plus one. And so he'd like he'd lean in and go, "Take me home and make me stink." And I go, hmm. And it was really just you two guys, right? I mean, you were all green screen and blue back then. You guys were blue, blue screen. screen. They hadn't had the green figured out yet. You guys were playing 12-inch tall characters. An X of tape is Val Kilmer's angry, scolding face. You have to run to a playback and make sure that you're hitting every X of tape with your bare feet because you can't look down or it looks like you're doing a Spencer Tracy. <laughs> so you have to feel it, run, memorize how many steps to that kind of roughly here. Okay, because if you go too far, you've walked into the middle of a tree that will be in your way or a rock or a thing. And they have a mapped out route you can run that you have to memorize while not looking down at it. And then you have to look up and then run from the tennis ball on a stick <laughs> with an X of tape. Run from it. It's scary. Run for the tape. <laughs> and that was that. And for, a, for your first kind of large, giant movie, a little bit daunting that that's, that's your acting challenge, I would imagine. It was fun, though. It was good to have a partner. Yes. Oh, there you are again. Yeah, back with the partner. There was the security of having a team, and I, you know, I've been paired a lot in movies with Peter Scolari and uh, mm, yeah, 
You know, I've Rick Dukeman and uh, Rick Dukeman, Groundhog Day. Uh huh. That's right. Jerry Downey in Leverage. Uh, I, the interaction of a frick and a frack. Yes. Is just there's something about it. Yeah. I really like it. You know. Uh, you worked with a very young uh, Scarlett Johansson. And eight-legged freaks. Eight-legged freaks. She was fifteen or something. Something like that. For crying out loud. Yeah. God, she when she sang in the van on the long drive home from the set, mm. we go back to our hotel. She sang like a grown up, like this. She has this brilliant singing voice, like recording star voice. Like, really? We all go, what? Wow. wow. Interesting. Well, she's good at everything, you know. Yeah. So, makes perfect sense. She'd probably be good at that too. People say, no, wait a minute. What are you? Are you this or are you that? Uh, well, they love the pigeonhole in Hollywood, don't they? Yeah, and I say like. Are you? Do you have expandable RAM? <laughs> Can't they put in 3K RAM in your head? Make room for me being two things? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, just just to think about the things that that I've done with you and and uh, that I know you've done uh, acting, stand up, improv. I mean, you've been doing improv for as long as you've been doing stand up. Probably even sooner if you think about class clown stuff and things like that. That's all based on just kind of going off the moment. We're doing improv right now. We are. I don't have any questions here. We're just just to demystify the whole process. You know, it's there's this myth about improv that uh, uh, it's just you know quick snappy games, right? And sure. tests and someone quizzes you and you're right or you're wrong how you do it. <laughs> but life is an improv. Or you're not really living. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a as an improv teacher, I'm always telling people that it's uh, the first thing I tell you know people in class is you've been doing this your entire life. We're just showing yeah, right. you, we're just showing you how to be aware of it. Yeah, well, that's there you go. You know. Well, of course we agree, Mark. Of course. <laughs> and scene. scene. <laughs> uh, but you're also a, a writer. Uh, you and I have written together. Uh-huh. Uh, Wrote a fantastic screenplay, uh, which, Vortex, uh, which uh, will probably uh, never see the light of day. Unfortunately, it would have been if it came out right when we wrote it. Oh man, it would have been it would have been in front of a bunch of stuff that was incredibly similar, but after the fact. Yep. But yeah, that was cool. Can we talk about it? Why not? The Invisible Bastard's not going to stop us. <laughs> my, 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 my pet name for our... our, our Don't one, name names. Don't name no, names. No, our one-time one producer. Remember we... I still remember that day we, we drove over to that apartment. We signed those papers. We were going to get $100,000 a piece. Sure could have used it. Oh, and then the invisible bastard went and went invisible, cloaked on us. <laughs> like instantly we saw it. Like <laughs> rock and roll flash pot of magnesium powder and what? <coughs> what the fuck? We're just, we're just left trying to figure out how we're gonna pay for gas to get home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh Vartex is a story of this. Guy who's in the woods with his son on a estranged son on a camping trip, and he's going to try and bond with the kid again because he's feeling kind of guilty about it all. And uh, then suddenly, big alien ship appears and beams his son up. Yep. 
and he uh, he barely manages to grab on after him in the beam. Yeah, and gets drawn up with him, and they separate for some odd reason. We how did we figure out how they separated? Well, what they, happened to them? Well, they got they separated. Them. They took the kid one way, and they took him the other. And he was kind of like a reject. They wanted the kid. They only want the kids. Right. Like on the that new series, uh, Falling Sky. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that. Yeah, they stick a thing on the kids and make them walk around like robots with a thing on their back. You can't take it up and kill the kid. Oh, wow. Okay. So they separate the... And then the the, uh, the dad goes berserk. and uh, Mild-mannered dad that never thought he had it in him now has to become this animal. And it's alien in reverse. Yeah. Dad is the dangerous thing killing the aliens on board their ship now. Yeah, it was kind of like, uh, you know, they always want you to encapsulate what it is. It's, it's, I think our early pitch was it was Die Hard on a spaceship. Yeah, was there some weird review saying something about movies? And, yeah. and oh, what, what, what was that weird review that came out that said, and can you believe someone thought of this? Or yeah, something? yeah. I, don't I thought, I don't know, I don't think it's weird, I think it's good. I think the, the review is weird. Yes. Exactly. I'd still pay to see that. Yeah, why not? Why not? So anyway, so, anyway, of course, he, you know, spends the movie, half the movie trying to find his kid, finally gets reunited with his kid, and a bunch of other people that have been uh, abducted. Including? Amelia Earhart. Amelia Earhart, <laughs> which they then had in a Voyager. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, all, all the bits and pieces from our movie have have sort of come out. Yeah, we had a little wink to Spielberg, and there's a giant chamber with all the missing Bermuda Triangle things, boats, webbed airplanes, webbed to... Yeah, their big museum sort of thing. Collection area. That was great. That would have been a cool shot, man. Would have been great. Would have been great, but what are you going to do? Keep writing. Keep writing. That's the thing. Write small, character-based indies. Yep. That's where it's at now. If you've got your red camera or your SLR... Yeah, there's been some great stuff. Um, I've I've reviewed several movies recently uh, that friends of ours have done, such as uh, Fred Stoller. I don't know if you saw Fred and Vinny yet. Oh, I heard. I heard it's great. It is. Is it going to get the circuit? Is it going to work? Well, it's on the it's on the festival circuit now. And, good, uh, good for Fred. That's smart, Fred. Man, that's it. Right, little little Miss Sunshine sized yeah, things. That's exactly, it. Exactly. Um, so let's. Uh, Let's uh, get back into sort of uh, where you went uh, once you're in Hollywood. Um, I know that you were, uh, you know, in that consideration pile for Saturday Night Live. Yep. Um, Got close a couple of times. And what was, I mean, what was that sort of uh, process like? It's nerve-wracking. And you know they don't they don't make it so easy on you there. They want to see if you can take it because that's kind of I guess what live TV would feel like every week. Mm. So they make that element sort of reality show. Oh really? Added pressure kind of feel to everything, you know, and see if you can handle that. Because if you can't, what's to say you can handle okay. every every Saturday? So you're seeing who you're auditioning with. And yeah. And do they have you just? kind of spitballing pieces? Do they give you sketches to do, or they just want you to do You your bring sketch? a couple of characters in, and, you know, I was bringing in some stuff, but never quite, I guess it wasn't what they were thinking about. Wanted it, though. I really, for a few years, I really thought that was it. But the reason I wanted it mostly is because it launches you into movies. Right. So it's kind of, like I got there in some way, anyway. Yeah, I mean you've you've done 
a pile of stuff. Uh, and uh, it's, it's fun for me knowing you, seeing you do stuff that isn't Rick Overton stuff. You know, sort of character comedy things like when uh, I thought uh, some of your really effective stuff has been drama, you know. Uh, you played uh, that husband of uh, on... Um, Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under, yeah. yeah. The woman who... Uh, who dies because she thinks the the uh, um, people are going up to heaven? Because <laughs> a, a truck full of helium inflated love dolls gets you into an accident, blows the roof off the panel van, and they all start going to the sky. And she thinks it's the ascension, yeah, the rapture. The so rapture. she has to run out and catch it, and the truck hits her. And right, and so you're the you're the husband of things. It's all God's plan, and it's okay that my wife is dead, and my son should be happy about it, and. Yeah, so you've had, I mean, you've had kind of intriguing little pieces on major pieces of uh, Hollywood moments. I mean, you... I was the you, killer in NYPD Blue, and uh, that was a... Yeah. That was a pretty serious situation there. Then you were a, a shrink on an episode of Lost. Uh, police, I gave Michelle Rodriguez her badge and gun back. Maybe a little hasty. <laughs> but uh, no she's awesome I love her in Avatar um, and uh, and even now you're uh, the uh, informant I was semi-serious you know he's kind of funny he's a farty asshole oh yeah no, it was, oh, it was great and, uh, what I loved about the informant uh, was how many comics they cast in that in the movie and everyone and, had to play it totally straight because the only joke is the truth of what happened because yeah. it's an all true event yeah, and so that I thought that was uh, a little piece of brilliance. I mean, <laughs> seeing seeing the Smothers Brothers in roles like that, and totally that. delivering the straightest stuff there is. Yeah, and we all loved the chance to do it, and you know, we we were just hugging each other, joking the whole time in between takes, and then you know, we our our biggest flip out other than watching Matt. I think it's some of Matt's finest work. Matt Damon did. He should have been nominated. He got cheated from a nomination on that one. He deserved something for that. Yeah, it was a pretty amazing. That should have gotten way more recognition because it's it's one of the stellar things I've seen. And I'm not just talking about him. He does great work every time. But I just I can't think of another person that went further from who they are to mm. be this thing. Yeah. Yeah, because he was like a sociopathic. Yeah, but of course it's a movie about perp walking giant executives out of their own companies out of their own company in front of all their employees so i can see why certain large corporate entities probably <laughs> wouldn't get behind advertising it yeah uh timing is everything but i thought that the work in it is just breathtaking you know and we are all flipped out to see tommy smothers i know how cool was that sit around him for a while at lunch and talk i talked with dickie smothers yeah. we talked we had a lunch and uh you know, it was really, there were some, a lot of highlights on that set. Yeah. Steven Soderbergh, I heard he's retiring from filmmaking, which is very sad news mm. to me. I hope he changes his mind and comes back. I love his stuff. And what was he like to work with on the set? Quiet, cool, mild-mannered, together, good. Right. Trusted you like crazy, you know. Yeah. You figure by the time you're there, you know. Yeah. Which is like nuts. It's great. Not 
not meat puppet bending and shaping you like a Gumby in every scene, yeah. you know? He's just, just he's kind of give you a little whisper and suggestion and then trusted what you did next. Nice, nice. Um, and you're, you're on a, a series that's uh, currently on. Saturdays at 8 on CBS called Chaos. Chaos. It's about a sort of rogue element inside the CIA. Yeah. It's kind of a weird left-wing spy show. Yeah. And you play a, a really interesting character. Operative Blank is kind of the Hank Kingsley <laughs> of the team. The bumbling, knuckle-headed buffoon that... Uh, I, I joked with Tom Speziali about how he came to be, and uh, I thought maybe he was submitted himself for truth serum testing and has done so many tests that he's now too emotionally weird and open to be really trustworthy on a mission. And, uh, he, you know, he wrote, and the, all the writers wrote, just incredibly good stuff me to do and there's some things coming up that are unreal that's great i mean it's so fun watching you do that part um, thanks because <laughs> it is a weird character you just never quite know what he's going to do which is a joy for me yeah and uh, doing stunts and you know yeah um let's talk a little bit about podcasts uh you don't have one of your own but you've you've done uh, some radio stuff, and you've been a guest on... Feldman a lot. David Feldman Comedy Podcast. Yeah, I do a lot of voice stuff for him. Yeah. Um, and are you on other people's shows, or just uh, Feldman's mostly? Uh, mostly his... I intend to do uh, Ramsey Moore's very soon, and Jimmy Dore as well. Um... It's becoming the way communication is occurring in the 21st century. Um, yeah, I mean, in talking to my my producer engineer, Joe Polino, we've decided one of the things we want to do with Succotash is really sort of be a spearhead for to try and teach people that podcasts are the way to go in terms of you don't have to be beholden to a network's shows or anymore. You can decide. The sponsors don't tell you what to do. No. You listen to who you want to listen to and the order you want to listen to it. Um, as long as the internet's still accessible, yeah, that will be the way it'll go. Yeah, absolutely. Until uh, they start to have tiering of it. Right, and, right. But for right now, it's, you know... Hey, free put, internet so far. Put the stuff on your on your smartphone and use Bluetooth. And, I mean, I, I've mentioned before, <clears throat> I don't listen to the car radio. I haven't for over a year. I just listen to podcasts. So exactly what I want to listen to. Yeah, it's cool. Um so uh, besides besides that sort of uh, freedom from the man kind of thing, what what else about podcasts do you do you find appealing about either podcasts specifically or just the idea of them? Well, they they survive into perpetuity. Yeah, they they live on by a a link to click to hear it again. Whereas a radio show, it's some radio shows keep it like that, but a lot of times you just you missed it. Yeah, too bad. I guess now they're blending. They are blending. Uh, the upside is you have absolute freedom. The downside is it takes a little longer for everyone to know about it. And no one's paying for any of it. And it, you can do it for free. Yeah. So there's your trade. You know, freedom is always the cost of freedom is not paying. Yeah, freedom not, is free. No pay. Freedom is free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they say it isn't free, you know. Yeah, I guess not with parking. <laughs> at lunch, but uh, close. 
um, I, I think it'll be looked upon in the future, uh, hoping we have one, is that uh, these were the last people saying exactly what they meant. Good way to look at it. Um, so, I, th you know, I'm not quite sure who the, what the demographic for Succotash is at the moment uh, as our listenership is growing. But in the interest of uh, comedy nerds, which seem to be the, the majority of those currently drawn to podcasts featuring comedians, um, how has the, how's the landscape changed in the time that you've been doing? I mean, it's, it's changed a lot. Uh, we can both answer to that, but just sort of specifically for somebody trying to get in comedy, how's, how has the, the opportunities shifted, how have the gigs changed, that sort of thing? Uh, since you've gotten into it? I think it used to be much more of a situation in the uh, late 70s, early 80s where they, they needed us because there was more clubs wanting to open than there were comics to go in and do the spot, like I was saying before. But I think I... TV then started making it easier to not have to go out to do it. Now that slowly affected everything else. That pond rippled butterfly affected everything else to the point where you go in now, it's not as unique as it used to be. If you go to a club, you have decades of memories of going to comedy clubs. Mm -hmm you will pick and choose how you do it much more differently than, ooh, i got to get out. I don't even care who's there. I just have to get out of my house. There's not enough in my house to keep me there. <laughs> they didn't install a big thing on my wall that gives me a hundred separate things I do just looking at the wall of my house. Yeah. I'm not stir-crazy in my house anymore. I have a thousand little distractions within my home. Um, there's 20 different things I can click to to have comedy fed to me. Yeah. Like a little baby bird at home. I don't have to fly anywhere. Right. Um, and I've seen it for years. There's nothing new about it anymore. Add to that, America has had its education curve changed, defunded, so jokes about certain things don't work the way they used to. Mm. Add to that, that now there's a uh, a big push for youth to be the the most important part. So it's it's more how new you are rather than how funny or how many years of experience you had. Like an old comic was respected in the old days, just by the fact that he was there that long, and you would watch the old technique and go, "That's a, that's great old technique." But now, uh, it's it's more like. It's like, you know, in the movie Predator, he'd slide the visor of his helmet down and all he could read was heat. Yeah. It seems like the business runs on a sort of infrared screening system where it just runs and <laughs> spots the brightest orange object and makes puts that on a show, you know. Yeah. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Doesn't read light. Just reads heat. Yeah. Um... And then there are miracles that occur in its midst. There's a lot of brilliant young people now that I think deserve more than they get. 
certainly Lee Camp, Jamie Kilstein. There's a lot of people coming out that are stunning new voices. Zach Kahn. Provenza's kind of, I think Paul Provenza's giving more people a chance to see the good stuff than practically anyone else now. And there's a lot of these younger guys that are realizing there's, there's you know, more than one way to skin a career. You know, they're doing podcasts. They're doing uh, videos on YouTube. They're doing these things that are maximizing their exposure, you know, with maybe even the faintest hope that television cares about them, you know, because they're probably getting a larger viewership than they could if they were on a half-hour special or something like that on on Comedy mm-hmm. Central, you know? That's probably right. They get a video that gets a million hits. That's better better numbers than Comedy Central has. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, so that's changed the face of, of sort of comedy marketing tremendously. I think that's true. Uh, and now it's... I, I, I think the last thing the networks expected they would have to do is pay attention to a YouTube. Mm-hmm. But now they have to. Yeah. And over a million hits, they have to have a division in the network that looks at these YouTubes. Yeah, I would think so. So, you know, the next big star could be the German Shepherd who's being tortured because <laughs> the cat's getting all the good treats. <laughs> yeah? No! <laughs> no, he's the star, but he's driving around a limo. <laughs> and the comics are all bitter going, yeah, what can he have? 12 year career tops. <laughs> And he needs a next-door neighbor. (laughs) Hey, hey, Shep, we'll be right back. (laughs) Uh, If people want to uh, get a a taste of of Rick Overton, uh, is there a a website that you keep up that they can go to? Not a good one, no. uh, I don't even... It's like I, I hear I have a website. But I haven't. I got to make sure everything's correct on it, and I don't even know. Right, <laughs> it was done right. by a dear friend, but uh, I'm so behind the times. I do have YouTube's up. Okay, that's and cool. so that's uh, knowing that that is where things are going. I'm I'm sort of also focusing there too. That's good, and you can uh, hear you uh, appearing fairly regularly on the uh, David Feldman Comedy Podcast. Yes. The uh, when is this on? Uh, this uh, hopefully will be up. Uh, next episode at least in part uh so it'll be up in the next week or two okay i can't mention i got this thursday i'm on the stephanie miller show but you can cut that part okay no problem yeah okay um uh uh, coming up in bad teacher oh really yes okay well that's funny part in bad teacher when is that open soon right yeah premiering it premiered last night in new york oh very cool so bad teacher yes in that uh, and of course, if you want to find out, uh, want to see him in all the things he's been in that you can track down, just go to imdb.com and just look up yeah. his filmography. You'll see that he's been in dozens of movies. Scroll down. Yep. Scroll down. Keep scrolling. Keep going. Keep going. I'll just whip out enough to win. <laughs> well, Rick, thanks very much for, uh, for talking to us. And uh, there's a whole lot more about Rick Overton that we didn't get into in this interview that maybe we'll get into in another. Uh, I look forward to it. interview, the, the secret life of Rick Overton. <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Find Succotash on the web at SuccotashShow.com. Follow Succotash on Twitter 
Friend Succotash on Facebook. Email Succotash at M-A-R-C at SuccotashShow.com. Succotash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino at Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our musical director is Scott Carvey, and our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to pass the Succotash. <laughs>